This morning's sermon is from Matthew's Gospel, and specifically chapter 1 and verse 1. Verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel, the sermon title, The Arrival of the King. I'll read our text, and then we can pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. And verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. We're grateful that we sit here this morning with a copy of your word in our hands. We pray now that you would richly bless our time around it. As we have worshipped you this morning, help us now to worship you yet more through our study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we begin our study of Matthew's gospel this morning. I don't know how long we'll be in this book, The Lord does, my guess, is some years. It's not normally my manner to preach a one-verse sermon. I do like to zoom out and try and capture the flow of the argument, and usually, at least in the Gospels, that means a paragraph. But this morning, it's appropriate to consider just the first verse. As we begin our study of Matthew's gospel, it is critically important to ask certain questions of the text. That is true of any book. Before you begin reading any book, you do well to ask certain questions of the book so as to better aid your reading of the book. Questions of authorship, of setting, of audience, and perhaps most importantly, the question of purpose. Perhaps the most important question you can ask of any book before you start reading is for what reason did this author write this book? That is true of any book of the Bible. Every single book in the Bible has a purpose. There is a reason for it having been written. The Lord carried along these men by the Holy Spirit and caused them to write these books. 66 of them in all, they are theologically in agreement. And yet, every single book is written for a different purpose. The biblical authors were often addressing an issue or responding to a problem, or eager to impress upon their readers a particular doctrine or truth. And perhaps the most important question you can do to help your reading of any biblical book is to ask that question of purpose. Why was this book written? So this morning, I want to ask that question of the book of Matthew. We'll be here for some time. As a church, we're going to feel very much at home 
in Matthew's gospel. I pray that he would bless our study of this book in the coming months and years. But we do well to begin by asking that question of purpose. And we're helped. We're helped because Matthew gives us an indication to some degree of his purpose in writing in verse 1. Or I could say this, Matthew gives us something of the indication of his purpose in his title. Now, I'm not referring here to your title. In your Bible, it most likely says Matthew, or perhaps the gospel according to Matthew. You understand that was not written by Matthew himself. That title is helpful, but it's not inspired Matthew didn't write at the, at the beginning of his gospel, the gospel according to Matthew. That came at some point in church history, and it's helpful. But that's not Matthew's title. Verse 1 is, in fact, his title. Verse 1 of chapter 1 is Matthew's title, not probably of the whole gospel, but most likely of the first section maybe the first 17 verses, or maybe are going a bit further than that, up to around about chapter 2. This was Matthew's intended title. And titles can be really helpful. They can tell us an awful lot about what's coming up. Matthew's title is very, very helpful for us to understand something of the reason for which Matthew wrote. What is that reason? I'll give it to you up front. Matthew was making an announcement that Jesus is the long-awaited-for king who will fulfill the hopes of Israel and bring blessing to the nations. I'll say that again. Matthew was making an announcement that Jesus was the long-awaited-for king who will fulfill the hopes of Israel and bring blessing to the nations. That is the reason for which Matthew writes this gospel. And that purpose should have life-altering implications for every single person on planet Earth. For every single person on this planet, life should not be the same once you have come to terms with Matthew's gospel. If you are willing to submit yourself to this book as inspired and authoritative, if you're willing to come to terms with what Matthew is doing, your life cannot be the same after having read this account of Jesus. This has got nothing to do so much with Matthew the man, but got everything to do with his subject matter. Matthew is making a bold claim in verse 1 of his gospel, and he's doing it not on any basis of self-assertion, but entirely on the basis of who it is that he is writing about. Matthew understands the significance of the coming of Christ. And he wants you to understand the same. 
Now, how is it that we get from verse 1 to that purpose statement that I just gave you? Let's just walk through this verse this morning. We'll see what Matthew does, why he does it, and why it has world-changing implications for us. Beginning with these initial words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the first thing to note there is that Matthew is drawing from Old Testament language. When Matthew writes the book of the genealogy, he's drawing from an Old Testament phrase, specifically found all the way back in the book of Genesis. If we were to read through Genesis this morning, we would see that there are many genealogies. There are many in the book of Genesis. And nearly all of them are preceded by an announcement of their own. Two of them are remarkably similar to the words that Matthew uses here, the book of the genealogy. Genesis 2.4 and particularly Genesis 5.1. Moses uses this phrase. So I don't think it's by accident nor by coincidence that Matthew uses this phrase. You've got to remember, Matthew had options. He could have begun his gospel in different ways, and yet he uses the same wording as is found all the way back in the book of Genesis. This is an intentional choice on his part to begin his gospel in this way. So why? At the very least, we can say that Matthew intends for this book to lay the same kind of claims about our worldview as does Genesis. If you were to read Genesis this afternoon and simply think about what Moses is doing in that book, it is self-evident that he is making enormous claims about the world. He's making radical claims about the nature of God. Moses teaches us in that book about the nature of creation and mankind and sin and just about everything that might go into that category that we label worldview, Moses is teaching us about it in the first book of the Bible. Now again, you can reject the claims that he makes or you can accept them as the inspired authoritative word of God and get your life under them. Genesis is intended to shape the way in which you view the world. As Matthew borrows from the language of Moses. At the very least, he is saying, so also this book. In the same way that Genesis impresses itself on your world and teaches you how to think, so also the gospel of Matthew Matthew is saying this book should shape the way in which you view the world just the same, the, way, the same way Genesis does. The gospel of Jesus Christ is intended to inform the way you think about God and mankind and sin and the world around you. It is intended to be a gospel that shapes your very worldview your reason for living, and your manner of living. Why 
because it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's not any old genealogy, but it is the book of the genealogy of specifically this man, Jesus. Now, as we read that name, Jesus Christ, don't think that Matthew is using Jesus as a first name and Christ as a kind of last name. I think we can often refer to Jesus in that manner, Jesus' first name, Christ, as if that were his last name. There would have been many Jesuses in Matthew's day. And certainly he is identifying the particular Jesus to whom he's referring. But think here of the word Christ as more of a title. Less his name as a title that Matthew is attributing to him. It would be entirely appropriate to translate this first half of verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Christ. That's a slightly more augmented translation, but it would be entirely acceptable. Matthew is saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Christ? He's asserting something about this man. What is he asserting? The word Christ is the New Testament term that is equivalent to the Old Testament word Messiah. When you read Christ in the New Testament, understand that what is inferred is the Old Testament concept of the Messiah. What does that mean? The Messiah simply means the anointed one. The one who has received an anointing of oil. So then who was anointed in the Old Testament? Primarily two offices. The first is that of the priest. And the second is that of the king. Priests and kings in the Old Testament would have received this anointing according to their office, their job. By the time we get to Matthew's day, that had narrowed down almost exclusively to the office of king. Almost exclusively, those being anointed, Matthew's readers would have understood the anointed one is the king. And so, when Matthew says, Here's the book of the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Christ. He's making a bold declaration that Jesus is the king. To Matthew's original readers, we might add, he is making the declaration that Jesus is the long-awaited-for king, the long anticipated king, the long-hoped-for king. Now, why do I say that? Because coursing through the Old Testament is an expectation that God is going to send a king. And again, it begins all the way back in Genesis. We could spend the rest of today tracing out this theme. But it begins in Genesis God created the heavens and the earth. He sets up the created order with mankind at the very pinnacle. 
Adam and Eve sit atop the created order as the privileged few. The beasts of the field aren't there. The birds of the air aren't there. The fish of the sea aren't there. At the top of the created order is mankind. God sets them up like a king and a queen. He gives them the instruction to to rule and to reign over creation. There is no doubt in Genesis chapter 1 that he has set them up as his representatives on earth. I'll often refer to them as vice regents. God is, is the king and he entrusts humankind to act on his behalf like kings. Two chapters later, they scorn that privilege. Two chapters later, as you know, Adam and Eve turned their back on the responsibility afforded to them. They follow the leading of the serpent. And they do the one thing that God said not to do. And as Adam and Eve take of the fruit, sin is introduced into the universe. It is difficult to overstate the enormity of the problem introduced in Genesis chapter 3. It is not merely that mankind is now plagued by sin as if that were not enough. But the whole universe comes crashing down on accordance of their disobedience. They were the stewards of everything. And in their disobedience, now sin is everywhere. Everything is now affected by sin. And you understand that we are utterly incapable of solving the problem. We're the cause of the problem. It was Adam and Eve that introduced sin into the universe, so the human race cannot be the ones to fix it. It cannot come from us, but it has to come outside of us. If there were to be a solution, it needs to come from God himself. And praise God it does. In Genesis chapter 3, as God unpacks now the implications that come from that first transgression, as he lays out what the world is now going to look like on accordance of their sin, he gives a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God utters for the first time the gospel. At the time, he's actually speaking to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, amidst all of the curses that are coming, he says to the serpent, there is going to be a one, a seed, an individual. He says to the serpent, you are going to bruise his heel." You will inflict a blow to him. But he's going to crush your head. That's God's response to the problem of sin. That's God's grace to us. It's the first iteration of the gospel in all of the Bible. God says to the serpent, there is an individual coming. He's going to crush your head. And even there, only by way of a hint, we understand that this individual is going to be a king. 
You see, God set up Adam and Eve in this vice-regent role. They scorned the privilege, and God responds by promising a king who will not fail. Now, where is the king in that promise? It is only a hint, but it's there. In Moses' day, at the time of writing, it would have been a common image. The idea of a king standing with his foot on the head of his enemy on the battlefield. His enemy, now defeated, lies on the battlefield, and the victor, the king, stands with his foot on his head, on his neck, signifying dominance over him, victory over him. And Moses employs that imagery. God uses that imagery to make the promise of the gospel. If by only a hint he is showing us that the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who is going to fix the problem of sin will be a king. And then as you keep reading, that hint gets unpacked more and more and more. Abraham has many interactions with kings as appear to them. God promises to Abraham many things, not least kings will come from you. He promises to Judah, the tribe of Judah, that there will be a Messiah that comes from your line, holding a scepter, and the obedience of the nations will be unto you. God shows himself to be the victorious king against Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. In the book of Deuteronomy, he makes laws concerning future kings of Israel. He then sets up judges as king-like figures to rule over Israel during those dark days. He establishes eventually a monarchy. And on and on it goes. God is working out his promise to send a king who will deal ultimately with the problem of sin. So you see, when Matthew says the book of the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Christ? He is making a world-changing announcement. This is a bold claim. He's saying, the long-awaited-for king has arrived. Your hopes are fulfilled in this man. Stop looking elsewhere and look only to Christ because he is the one who will deal ultimately with the problem of sin. Now, Matthew's original readers would have been far better attuned than perhaps we are this morning to the significance of that announcement. What I think Matthew's original readers maybe would have missed is the mechanism by which this king would bring about salvation. You and I know the mechanism in God's design by which this king would bring about our salvation is that he would go and die on a cross. And I say that his original readers may have missed that is because as we know, we read through the Gospels and the disciples are startled when Jesus teaches them, I must suffer and die. They have come to embrace him as the Christ. And the second they do, he switches in his teaching to say, okay, now you need to know what it means for me to be the Christ. I need to go and die. And they can't take it. They can't take it in. They can barely believe it. It's embedded 
in that first iteration of the gospel. Again, God speaks to the serpent and says, you will bruise his heel. There will be a blow struck to this king. And that is the mechanism by which our sins are paid for. As we sit here this morning, it may not be that this messianic expectation, this hope for a king, is so deeply ingrained in our culture as it would have been for Matthew's original readers. It's not so much in our DNA as it would have been for them, but what is true of all of us, his readers and of us today, is that we all need to deal with the problem of sin. What is true of every single one of us is that we stand condemned before a holy God and we need to face the problem of our sin. We have to figure out what we're going to do with this. And you can deal with it this day or you can deal with it when you stand before a holy God Jesus makes a way for our sins to be forgiven and Matthew is pleased to make that announcement now he goes on I want to consider now the next part of the verse the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. So Matthew here is now adding another phrase to tell us yet more in his title about this man Jesus and Matthew's concern as he records his life. And he says to us, he was a son of David. Why is that particularly important to Matthew? The answer is, in Jesus' day, there were many king-like figures, many people in authority, and also, in the Old Testament, there were many kings, people in authority, and many of them should not have been there. Many of them abused their position. Many of them failed in the trust that had been given to them to rule over God's people. Preeminent in Matthew's introduction is Herod. We'll be thinking about him as we work through this introduction, and we see how Herod operates out of fear and pride, how he, how he tries to engineer the death of the child, because he wants to reign, and yet he's not reigning in a way that brings any sense of glory to God. And so there's lots of kings, both in the New Testament, these authority figures, and certainly in the Old Testament, that weren't honoring God with the authority entrusted to them. Well, what God does is he's working out his promise for a king in the Old Testament. Around about the book of 2 Samuel, he locks in his plan to one man and one house. And as you know, that is the man David and his house. 2 Samuel 7, God makes promises to David. He makes promises to David, which indeed are part of a covenant. God enters into 
a binding agreement with King David in 2 Samuel 7, saying, from now on, my purpose is to bring about a king for the salvation of the nations will come through you, through your line. There will not fail to be a man from your house on the throne. And he will be the one who brings about redemption. So we know from earlier on that it's going to come through the nation of Israel. By 2 Samuel, we now know it's coming through the line of David. And there is so much that we could say about the significance of that one covenant. But what is particularly important is that that covenant offers great comfort to God's people. As you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, they generally do two things. If I can boil down the prophetic message, they do two things. They tell God's people that judgment is coming. And the prophets project forward to a day when salvation will come. The prophets always give hope to God's people. They tell them, Judgment's coming because of the way that you've dishonored the law, because of the way in which you've broken his law. But then they project forward. And the prophets are pleased to look forward to a time when the king will reign on his throne and salvation will come to the Jews. This morning, our scripture reading was Isaiah chapter 11. That was not coincidental. I want you to know that there's a lot of effort that goes into Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings orienting every aspect of the service around the point of the text. We've sung several songs this morning about the kingship of Christ. That wasn't coincidental. Our prayer this morning is that Bethany Bible Church would have our hearts attuned to the glory of Christ's kingship from the moment the service began. And that our worship this morning would be running along that wonderful doctrine. That's why we sang the songs we did and that's why our scripture reading was from Isaiah chapter 11. Because that is one of many passages to which we could have turned that project forward to that kingdom when the king has arrived. We can talk about a Davidic hope in the Old Testament. People understood the enormity of the promises given to David, and now they were looking for that one king from his house, knowing that when he comes, the kingdom will come with him. Sin will be dealt with ultimately. This king will bring peace to his people. This king, as we read in Isaiah chapter 11, unlike every other king, will deal with righteousness. He will reign with equity. He won't be deceitful. But he will reign gloriously as one who fears the Lord. Matthew tells us that Jesus, who is the Christ, is that king. He comes from the house of David. And so the Old Testament hopes are bound up in him. Not that he brings them immediately. 
not that he brings them now. One of the things we'll talk about as we work through Matthew's gospel is Jesus' miracles. What do we do with Jesus' miracles? He doesn't do these works before us in order to communicate that they are to become a normative aspect of the Christian life. That's not why Jesus did what he did. But rather, each and every time we see Jesus perform a healing, a miracle, he is giving us a window into what his kingdom will one day be like. Jesus will return and set up his kingdom, and we can see now the nature of that kingdom. That's why in Matthew chapter 9, the blind man knows exactly what he's saying. When he cries out to Jesus and he says, Son of David, heal me. He calls him, Son of David, heal me. Because that man, to some degree, understood that the healing he was seeking would only be found in the Son of David. It could not be found elsewhere, but it would be found in the Son of David. And there would be a very strong hope amongst the Israelites for this son of David. Now it's important to say, as much as this was a hope for the nation of Israel, it should not be lost on us. The Davidic hope of which the prophets spoke of, when they kept leaning on those Davidic promises and projecting forward to a time of Edenic bliss, That hope is not only to benefit Israel. It will undoubtedly benefit them, but it will spill over to the whole earth. If we had read on in Isaiah chapter 11 this morning, we would have seen how the whole earth is covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Every single person who is in that kingdom will benefit So we as Gentiles can join by being greatly comforted at this announcement. Now as we begin our study of Matthew, by way of application this morning, I would just ask you to pray that you would pray consistently As we, as a church, work through this book, that your eyes would be opened to the glory of Christ's kingship. That your hearts would be enlarged to the kingship of Christ. You might be here this morning having never really come to terms with Christ as king. Pray that God would give you faith. To accept this man on his terms. Not his own terms. Not your own terms, but his terms. That you would embrace him with eyes of faith as king. You maybe know Christ as king. Pray that you would know him yet more as king. As we study this gospel, your prayer consistently. Each and every Sunday morning, you rise and you come to church praying, Lord, enlarge my heart to the kingship of Christ. It is perhaps the most prominent point of emphasis for Matthew. 
He in particular wants to emphasize the kingship of Christ. And as much as you embrace that truth, pray that yet more you would embrace it. Lord, show me yet more of my sin and my utter need for a savior. Open my eyes still further to my desperate situation apart from Christ. Help me this very morning to rejoice in his authority in my life. Because I desperately need him as a king. Pray, as we work through the gospel of Matthew, pray that you would be comforted by that truth. That you would be comforted by the reality of Christ's kingship. Matthew understands that it is intended to give you comfort. That's why he says he's a son of David. The Davidic hope of which the prophets spoke as they look forward to that time when sin will be dealt with is found in him. You are intended to be comforted by Christ. Pray that the Lord would wean our hearts off other things in which we are tempted to find our comfort. Pray that you would learn the skill of finding your comfort in Christ. That our attachments to other things in which we are so prone to locate our sense of security and identity and belonging would be lessened. And over the course of our study in this book, God would do a work in this church so that we would know the comfort that comes from looking forward to the return of Christ. Matthew says one last thing in his title. He says he's a son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's a few things to work through here. The first is the tension that comes about by simply mentioning Abraham after having mentioned David. It's a tension not simply because they're out of chronological order, I even considered this week as I was looking at this text, would it be better to, to preach the text in a different order to which it has been given to us? Then I thought better to change the order of God's word. <laughs> it is given to us out of chronological order. The announcement of the son of David comes first and then the announcement of the son of Abraham. But that then raises a bigger issue, which is if we know he's a son of David... Why do we need to mention that he's a son of Abraham? Abraham came first, then David. The nation of Israel came through the line of Abraham. From the nation of Israel came the line of David. If Jesus is of the line of David, there is no need to mention that he is also of the line of Abraham. It stands to reason he couldn't be otherwise. So why mention that he's of the line of Abraham? 
When God called Abraham in Genesis 12, he gave him a series of promises also. Just as he did to David, he gave Abraham some promises that became a covenant. And those promises to Abraham were threefold. He said, I'm going to give you a land. I am going to deliver you and your people into a land. That was promise number one. Promise number two to Abraham was, I'm going to give you a seed. That is a line, a lineage, a heritage. There will be descendants and specifically one very important descendant that comes from you. Promise number three, through you, Abraham, there will be a blessing to the nations. That's the threefold promise of the Abrahamic covenant. As Matthew finds reason to tell us that Jesus, who is the Christ, is a son of David and a son of Abraham, he is doing it so as to highlight one of those promises. Now, why do I say that? Reading through Matthew, the land promise is not a particular emphasis of his. It does come up, and we'll deal with it in various texts, but the land promise, as given to Abraham, is not a particular point of emphasis in Matthew's gospel. The seed promise has already been dealt with by announcing that Jesus is the Christ. There's the seed that we've all been waiting for, so that one's been dealt with. It seems that as Matthew mentions he's a son of Abraham, he wants to bring, albeit subtly, attention to the fact that through this man there will be a blessing to the nations. This does become a point of emphasis in Matthew's gospel. We'll see it even next week as we study through the genealogy. Matthew is pleased to bring up over and over again that through this man there is intended to be a blessing to the nations. And that begins all the way back in Genesis as God laid that promise on Abraham. He's a son of Abraham. So remember, reader, Matthew is saying this man will bring about a blessing to the nations. Now, why did Matthew want to stress that? In part, because his primarily Jewish readership had become unrighteously jealous of God's grace. In part, it is because the Jews had become unrighteously jealous of God's grace. Think about the prophet Jonah. We could go many places in the Old Testament to demonstrate this point. The Jews had become a people who did not want to see God's saving grace go beyond their boundaries. Jonah struggled when the Lord said, go and preach salvation to the Ninevites. He didn't want that for them. But it was supposed to be part of who they were. It was supposed to be something that God was doing through them, extending the gospel to the nations. And so Matthew brings it up here as a subtle reminder to these people. This is the king that you need to embrace. Think just for a moment about how this gospel ends. You'll know how Matthew's gospel ends uniquely and famously. Jesus' last words to his disciples in this gospel, all authority 
on heaven and on earth has been given unto me. There's his kingship. Jesus is making one final declaration as to his kingship. All authority has been entrusted to me. Therefore, on the basis of that authority, you are to go. Imitating that call that God gave to Abraham, Jesus is sending out his disciples, go now to the nations. Go to all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey that which I have taught you. The Great Commission is not merely Jesus' marching orders to his disciples and in turn to us, though it is certainly that. But it is one final declaration as to the kingship of Christ. We see in the closing verses of this gospel that which Matthew began in verse 1. If this is indeed the king, then there should be through him a blessing being worked out to the nations. And so as Jesus departs, he hands that responsibility on to his disciples and says, now you need to go. This is what it means to serve and to follow this king. And so, as we begin our series in Matthew, we add to our prayer list not only that God would enlarge our hearts to the kingship of Christ, Not only that God would teach us to be comforted by the future return of the king. But that he would work out in us a zeal for the nations. This is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to acknowledge him as our king. If we are to meet with Christ in the way that he intends for us to meet him the way that Matthew sets him forth in verse 1 of the gospel, it means that we have a zeal to see the gospel go out to the nations. And so we pray that the Lord would give us that desire and that we as a church would be found faithful. We pray for the lost in Thousand Oaks. We pray for the lost in this state and this nation and in the nations. And we ask that the Lord would allow us in some way to take part in the Great Commission. That is when we are found to be ascribing to Christ the kingship that he deserves. Why did Matthew write this gospel? To make an announcement that Jesus is the long-awaited-for king who will fulfill the hopes of Israel and bring blessing to the nations. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gospel, for the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that you sent your son as the long-awaited-for king who will indeed one day fulfill the hopes of Israel when he establishes his kingdom on this earth and in accordance with the promises given to Abraham 
He will bring about a blessing to the nations. Father, as we've talked this morning, help us now. Help us to embrace the kingship of Christ. I pray that we would see Christ as you want us to see him. Not our own version of him, not those parts that we find to be agreeable, but work in our hearts that we would embrace his kingship, his authority. Increase our sense of sin, the need that we have for a savior king. Impress that upon us. I pray for anyone here who's never acknowledged their sin before you. that they would not hesitate right now to confess that they're a sinner in need of grace. Father, help us to joyfully run towards obedience to Christ's words. He's the authoritative king who teaches us how we are to live in response to the gospel. May we be found as a church striving to get our lives under your word in obedience. We give you thanks for the comfort that comes through the announcement that this one is a son of David. That bound up in those words is a hope that he will indeed return as we've read this morning in the prophet Isaiah. He will establish his kingdom and put an end to sin that when Jesus reigns on his throne he'll do so with equity and righteousness Father teach us to be comforted by that hope we are so prone to put our hope in other things things that will fail things that will fade, things that were never designed to give us ultimate hope. Teach us to be comforted by the truth of Christ's return. And Lord, as we see the announcement that he's a son of Abraham, we ask that you'd bring about in us a zeal for the lost, the nations you can do whatever you want through us please would you give us a passion to spread the gospel and so use us that we would see sinners coming to saving faith in Christ Lord we commit ourselves to you in Jesus name Amen.